Hey lovelies, so wedding season is in full swing. There is a great selection of dresses that are perfect for your next wedding or any event on impactfashionnyc.com. My personal favorite for really dressy affairs is the slip dress. It just has this really great flowy high class feel. I whip out the gemstone flutter for times when I'm feeling color, but I don't want to like have to make the effort of putting together an outfit just all the colors in the outfit and the ready topper is my go-to for when comfort is my highest priority we all have those obligation events we got to go to right so see those along with all of my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com enjoy the show From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. I'm Rifki Itzkowitz, and on today's show, I talk with a labor and delivery nurse about giving birth. We discuss the things every pregnant person should know, how to figure out if you're with the provider that's a good fit for you, the proper way to approach a birth plan, and that first post-birth poop. Connie Fingerer, a self-described birth nerd, is a wealth of information. You know how some people just light up when they talk about their favorite topic? That's Hani and birthing. She's a labor and delivery nurse who's also the host of the Happy Birthway podcast and is incredibly passionate about birth and birth education. I was very creative. I lied a lot probably when I was like, you know, in the five, six-year-old range. And now my five-year-old is pretty much uh, taking revenge on me because she knows how to fabricate very elaborate stories that are completely untrue. Um... But That's I heard a, that kids that lie. By the way, I've asked this question to a lot of people and literally nobody has given me that answer. And this, this, that's fantastic. This is like over the hundredth interview that I've done. And that's amazing. Yeah. I, I, I see the association between creative and making up stories. It's, it's a good way to exercise the muscle. I guess. Yeah. As long as you grow out of it. <laughs> true. Very true. Did you always know that you were going to be a nurse? Oh, no, 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 no. When I was like, you know, I don't know, a senior in high school, and I was thinking about future career plans, and someone mentioned nursing, I was like, nurses? Like, they work night shift wiping people's butts. Like, why would I even consider something like that? I mean, see, it's interesting, because we're, and I have now spent a, a, a couple of nights in a, in a hospital, um, having, having given birth via C-section, and I had that exact same thought until i mean until you actually spend some time in a hospital and you're like no there's somebody else who wipes your butt and then the nurses are the happy people who come with the medicine they're the pain med people um but what like what made you like what um how did i end up here thank you yes (laughs) um first of all just for clarification we do wipe butts i mean i do and interestingly enough you know like any ancillary staff like nurses aides um, who also wipe butts, if they don't do it, it's our responsibility. Ultimately, it comes down to us, and, like, we're the ones held accountable. So if it's not done, it's on us, not on them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and as a labor and delivery nurse, that is a big part of my job. Um, cleaning people down there, it, it's, like, just a normal day in my life, you know. Um, but what happened was, was that I thought initially that I was going to go into the mental health field, you know, mental health counseling, something of that sort. And as I was doing my undergrad schooling, 
I had my first baby at only 21 years old. And once those two pink lines showed up on that pregnancy test, I just, I'm an information junkie. So, and there was no Google in those days. I mean, Googling this stuff. Maybe there was Google Chrome. I don't even remember. But, you know, there wasn't as much info out there as there is today. So I think I learned mostly from books. But I became a fanatic. And I, I got my hands on every book that I could. You know, I took a childbirth education course. And it just opened up this whole new world to me that I never really thought about. I actually remember growing up when I was younger, one of my friends, her mom was an OBGYN, and I think she was maybe in her residency at that point. And I went to her for um, the Sabbath, you know, where um, it's a big family time, lots of restrictions, no phone. And I remember her mom wasn't at home, and it was just like kind of gave me this negative feeling toward being a doctor in general. I, I felt bad for her. So, um, but other than that, I never thought about childbirth, and I became a fanatic. I just loved it. I loved all of the physiology. I loved learning about labor options, different, you know, considerations, and then postpartum and newborn care and lactation. Um, and like I said, I became a fanatic. And when I was receiving my prenatal care, you know, I just used the doctor that everyone around me used, you know, my husband's sister used this doctor, her daughter used this doctor, so I used the doctor. I didn't think much about it. And when I started asking my doctor questions, you know, I'd get a little bit like eye rolling and things like that from this doctor, but I took it in stride. I didn't think much about it. Then when I actually went to the hospital and it was my time to give birth, I had a very straightforward birth, honestly, but I was really mistreated by the staff, by the doctor, um, things were done to me without my consent, you know, and I was just told after, oh, you know, I did whatever it was, okay, now this is gonna happen. And I, I always say you can have a very straightforward, healthy birth, but if you're not treated well, you're gonna come out with very negative feelings and you can have the opposite where you can have a, an intensely complicated birth with a lot of unexpected outcomes but at the same but you can come out of that birth feeling empowered feeling respected and it can be life transforming and so you know that that's I, I came out feeling really not good and it affected everything it affected my postpartum course and everything like that and so I, it was at that point that I started to some people become nurses because they've had some encounter with the medical system that was positive. I became a nurse because my encounter was negative and I really wanted to be the nurse that takes such great care of um, patients and that advocates for patients. And it's such a vulnerable time. Like you're, you're just so dependent on others for so many different things. And of course, so hormonal and so emotional. And I remember thinking then, how could, how could you even be in this field if you're going to mistreat patients? And I have to tell you, it's a very complex answer, and now I can understand how it can happen. Super complicated. But I just wanted to be out there advocating and making women feel empowered in their births, and I just became a birth junkie. I, I couldn't understand why my other pregnant friends wouldn't be interested and like all the things that I was. When you say mistreated, 
you're I'm I'm going to assume and correct me if I'm wrong that you're not talking about like an abusive situation or like a medical malpractice situation. What do you mean by that? Because I I think that it's hard to understand how it's hard for me to understand how you know how you can how you how something falls into that you know not 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 obviously awful but still not positive. Right, and when I say mistreatment. I refer to it as the spectrum. It can go as far as medical malpractice. It can go, it can be something that's called obstetric violence or obstetric assault, which is, for example, something like a woman who her, she's, she needs to push out her baby. She arrives to the hospital and she's, you know, fully dilated and having that very intense urge, but the doctor is not there. So, and there's been a, a lawsuit about this, but unfortunately nurses are afraid to have a delivery without a provider there they're they're afraid of the backlash so a nurse actually holding down the woman and holding the baby from coming out until the doctor arrives um yeah so you know so it can it can range and then at the other side of the spectrum it could be just mistreatment by people not being nice by people not supporting your birth plan you know by the staff scorning you for whatever reason by not getting your epidural um, in time, but it could have been preventable had, you know, your treatment been more timely, etc. Um, so it's a huge, huge range. And then there are just things that are done, such as breaking someone's water, that it's not malpractice at all. And it can be very beneficial. And it can be something that the patient actually would have agreed to, but the patient is not asked for their consent before that. And they're not explained what the benefits would be. They're not explained what the the risks would be. And so even if they would have made the same decision, and I see this all the time, even though they would have made the same decision, they come away feeling very violated. And, you know, that's what we call trauma, especially there are so many people who have had other trauma, invasive trauma in, in, on their bodies. And that can really be, um, reawakened you know that that can like if you're a sexual assault survivor or something like that correct correct yes exactly yeah and we don't and we don't know who is a survivor or not there are many people that will never say it to anyone um so and and just people go through other trauma living with a close family member that was emotionally verbally abusive whatever it may be and now they're in such a vulnerable place and they need that extra respect that extra honor that that good treatment um so it's such a range when i say mistreatment it it could really be a huge thing right you know right so there's there's a wide range of things that can go wrong um and there's a wide range of things that can go right and then there's a really vast spectrum in between and something that i have found i will say this i have found first of all the happy birthway podcast your podcast i personally have found first of all, to be really entertaining and really, it was really helpful to me, you know, in the lead up to my birth. I love how your episodes are really separated by topic. So there were some, there were some topics that were just not interesting to me that I just didn't care for. So I, I skipped those. And then there were other, as I'm scrolling through and I'm like, Oh, I, I want to hear about that. I want to hear about that. And the fact that you come with the medical background, I'm a big, um, I, I have a problem with the term, you know, like coach or life coach or something like that, because it's such an unregulated term. You know your stuff, which is obviously not surprising because you're an L&D nurse and this is what you do. Um, but the ability to listen to these different birth-related topics explored and have your expertise put in is really, really valuable. Um, 
And I'd love to know what made you decide to go from, you know, you could have just been the world's best L&D nurse, you know, someone who working, you know, with your patients and advocating for them and all of that. What made you decide to take the step to, you know, to start your Let It Academy and, and launch the podcast and really form this community around the empowered birth experience? Okay, so Rifki, first of all, thank you so much. That really means a lot to me, you know, that, that you enjoyed listening to the podcast from one, pod, from one podcaster to another. It really means a lot when um, you appreciate it. And um, I'm glad to hear that I'm entertaining. I, I never thought of myself as entertaining on specifically a podcast. I, I, you know, I, I'd like to think of myself as entertaining on Instagram, but thank you. It's, it's good to know, you know. <laughs> you are. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I love to chat it up. So I, I'm a nurse now for, I'd say, almost close to eight years. And over my work, I've noticed that most of my patients had not taken a prenatal class um, or so much as read a book or watched a TikTok. <laughs> and they just came to their birth thinking that the staff will tell them what to do, their doctor will tell them what to do, the nurse will tell them what to do, and then they'll just do it. And I've seen so much of the time where, firstly, for lack of a better word, patients were messed up where their provider recommended something that was not necessarily in their best interest. Um, not even, you know, medical advice can be such a huge range. There's not always a right or wrong answer, but for their particular circumstances, for one reason or another, they could have chosen better had they had the knowledge. Secondly, I saw so much anxiety among people in labor, um, postpartum, so much anxiety especially with their first, not understanding what was going on, woman telling me, I, I keep leaking fluid, and me explaining, yeah, so after your water breaks, you will continue to leak fluid until your baby is out. Just simple things like that, not understanding what I'm looking for when I am interpreting their heart rate, not understanding, you know, what the reason is for their induction, what medication they're getting, how it works, not understanding things about when they choose to have an epidural, so I, it just really, I, I love educating. I love it. That, that's, you know, I guess I was just born with that um, inherent, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I, I loved doing it to my patients on a one-on-one -on -one level. But labor is not exactly the best time to find out all of this new information. The understatement of the century. And I'm even saying that as someone who has never been in labor. I had a scheduled C-section. But yeah, I, yeah, okay. Good. And a scheduled C-section too. Knowing that you're having a C-section, it's, it's can be really nerve wracking, not understanding or knowing exactly what's going to happen. And I have patients all the time that come for their scheduled C-section and I start explaining things to them and they're like, oh, oh, you know, and, and they didn't know any of this. And it actually really, I see helps reassure them, ease their anxiety, you know, when they see how safe it is and when they see, you know, how, how it can be a beautiful experience. So overall, it's, I, I, I saw so many times where a patient's experience could have been so much better just from having the education and the knowledge. So yeah, and, so speaking of labor, it's not exactly the best time to, you know, learn this stuff. Like, 
sometimes when when the patient is asking for an epidural, they have to have, you, you had this when you had a C-section, something called informed consent, where they are explained a very, very like brief overview of the risks and benefits, and then they have to sign a form in front of the doctor consenting. And so it's just really funny to me when an anesthesiologist walks into an a- active laboring patient's room and starts explaining these things, you know, <laughs> not exactly the best time. So the patient is just like, you know, they say, how, how, uh, so do you have any questions? The patient's like, how fast can you get it in? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. and, and when COVID happened, we started to transition to a lot of virtual learning. I think that social media education picked up a lot. My husband had been telling me for years, like, start one of these Instagram accounts. And I was like, I'm not going to have anything to say. Like, I'll say my piece for five minutes and then that's it. It's going to be boring. And he's like, no, you know, you have so much to say. And I mean, he's right. And <laughs> I, I would have to like bite my tongue a lot of the time when we would just have like the, you know, lounging out outdoors, like in my neighborhood when a bunch of women were sitting around and talking about these things. And like, I didn't want to be the know-it-all. So I would have to shut my mouth and bite my tongue. Um, I learned from trial and error, um, <laughs> made some enemies along the way. But just had to learn to keep my mouth shut. And I, I was like, but I have so much good information that I could really tell you. And so I said, all right, let me just direct all of that to social media. And then, you know, whoever wants to listen to me will listen. And I got a great response. And then there are many childbirth professionals out there that are on social media. So what I found not to be, though, is Jewish childbirth professionals. And we know that from a cultural standpoint, when somebody has care, let's say the black maternal death rate is terrible and it's disproportionately higher than white and Latino. And, but when we, when black women have a black provider caring for them, doctor or midwife, their outcomes are actually better. And so it's, it's kind of the same idea where people of the same culture tend to trust one another more and not only that but within our jewish orthodox jewish lifestyle in particular we have a lot of laws that are um you know governed by pregnancy by the reproductive cycle at large and i'm not in any i'm very very um clear on differentiating between me not being able to dictate any law, you know, speak to any Jewish law. However, I know what the common questions are that come up. I know what the erroneous assumptions are, you know, unfortunately among rabbinic authorities as well. And so my other purpose is to really educate Jewish women in understanding everything thoroughly so that when on an individual case-by-case basis, they need to figure out how Jewish law applies to their particular medical situation, they can understand all of the implications of their, of the medical specifics that I see most people don't understand. And so it's, that's like, it's a double purpose. So my audience is really wide range. I mean, people across the world give birth in the same way, but um, I, I add, I have this added layer, and interestingly enough, I have a lot of people who are completely unaffiliated, you know, with, with they never met a Jew in their life that are actually intrigued and interested and will listen to the podcast because I try to explain things too. So 
um, these are this this was my purpose. I started I started Instagram. I was really scared of doing it. And first I thought it was just going to be like these little, you know, the little blocks of like quotes and things like that. And then like the next month, the whole reels thing came out. Oh, God. And, and I had I realized... a full blown like hissy fit. I had a hissy fit when reels came out. I was like, I, I finally got into a groove and now you got to throw in this whole other thing that I got to do. Oh, it was it was an epic hissy fit. So did you go through the same thing? I, I really didn't because I was starting out, so I was uh, maybe a little bit more flexible because I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And first, I intended for it to just be these little blocks of, like, you know, carousels and whatever with information. And then I started showing my face a little bit. I was terrified. But when I started showing my face, I saw that my engagement was a lot higher. And that makes sense because people can develop a trust when they see a face behind the information. Right. Um, and so that led me to, all right. Connie, you were brave enough to start this whole Instagram thing. Now just be brave enough. Be brave. Just show your face on a reel. And I did it. And I I spoke to a few people who were like, you know, they had some social media presence. And they all told me, they're just do it. Just start. It's not going to be perfect. You're going to make mistakes. You're, you know, it, it's going to be ugly. And it's true. If you look in the beginning of my feed, it's just really ugly. Um, but you'll, you'll get there. You'll, you'll get better. Just start because if, unless you just start, it, it will never happen. Right. And, and yep. then, and then what I started to do is I started to do lives of interviewing people and I'm already a podcast junkie, like from years ago. And I was like, this would be so much better if it were in a podcast format. Um, you know, people can learn in a different way. People like podcasts. People don't have to be on social media to be able to listen to podcasts. And, you know, with Instagram, you have to have the app open if you want to listen to somebody's recorded live. And, um, you know, you can edit it better, whatever it is. So I said, let's try to do that. And uh, here I am. It's a labor of love. I mean, Rifki, you'll know. Um, and actually, I listened to your podcast way before I started mine, and it was inspiration because yours is so well made too. Uh, the audio is so important to me. It's well edited. Your artwork is beautiful, and um, you're just a great interviewer. Thank so, you. I appreciate that. It's that that means a lot. It's um, yeah, a labor of love definitely describes what a what a podcast is. It's I had a similar situation where yeah, you were. Well, especially when these lives took off, which was really a, a COVID thing where they really took off. And there were all these long form conversations that I wanted to listen to. But the fact that it was holding my phone hostage was really, you know, that it, it just, it, it was so annoying. Um, and I had actually started the podcast just pre COVID. Um, and then it, and then it really took off, took off during, but I want to, I want to focus back on you. And I want to focus back around this, this birth education. Um, it's, See, it's I, I came at this from a little bit of a different perspective with my own experience, which is I'm also an information junkie. I will research something till the ends of the earth. And I did. Um, and I did research till the ends of the earth. And I and and yet there was still a level of I want to say uncertainty, for lack of a better word, just because it's I mean, it's a whole other thing. It's a whole other thing. It's a major surgery is a whole other thing. Um whether you know whether you're giving birth vaginally or via c-section like it's just a whole other you can't really describe it like there is no really great way to describe what that whole experience is like um and 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 it's which is why i think that these sources of information are so important what is what is do you think um something that everyone like let's every every, every pregnant person should know or every person trying to get pregnant should know what what should we all be aware of going into our pregnancy birth and postpartum experiences so you make great points, Rifki. Firstly, you're right. Until 
suppose you experience it, it's impossible to know what it's going to be like, um, you know, even if you're so well educated. Um, I like to compare that to going on a trip to another country. So you want to, you know, this is a life, once in a lifetime experience or, you know, however many times birth doesn't happen to you every day. And so you want to have a great itinerary. You want to research the restaurants. You want to research the destinations. But until you actually get there, you're not going to be able to understand the beauty and the wonder of exploring this new country. So I like to liken that, you know, to childbirth education. As far as what are really the, the foundational blocks I would say one of the most important things I can think of is choosing a provider that is in alignment with your philosophy on birth. Because you can't take the bias out of birth. Yes, we have research. A lot of it is conflicting. There are different philosophies of care. There's a philosophy of active management of labor, which is, you know, actively applying interventions in order to um, minimize, mitigate risks. And then, then there's the expectant management of labor where we keep our hands off and we just allow, you know, the labor to unfold on its own and try to you know, prevent problems from happening in the first place. Um, but the view is, is that the interventions also have risks involved. So, and then there's the in-between. And so some people will start to feel, even in their first pregnancy, this like just niggling doubt that they're not they're, they're not, they don't have chemistry with their provider. They can't even sometimes put their finger on why. But it's at that point where I encourage you to try to research a little bit more into who would be um, a better fit for you and how you can know that. Because again, you need a professional's take. You need professional education to understand how to look for a provider specifically with, you know, to fit your philosophy. And it's dependent on so many things, you know, like health insurance, location, et cetera. Um, things like, you know, and, and, and where your provider delivers actually, for example, C-section rates, right? Um, some, some, we have hospitals that are not far from each other and they have vastly, the gap between the C-section rate is huge. And so there was a lot of research done on that, and it was found that the hospital you choose to give birth at, if you're choosing a hospital, is a greater determinant of whether you're likely to end up with a C-section. And so it was found that things like episiotomy rates and C-section rates for people who weren't planning on having a C-section who were laboring were determined more by the hospital than by the provider, actually. Um, and in that case, when you're choosing your hospital, that you can do, the research um, to figure out C-section rates and things like that is a lot easier to do. There's the LeapFrog group, there's CMS.gov, and they have a lot of statistics on hospitals um, that have to report these rates. What's a and good so, C-section rate? Like, what's what's the cutoff rate? Or, you know, what would you can... I, I don't know these things. What At what point would – I would assume that if I saw like a 70% C-section rate, that would be very high. Is it? I don't know. That's obscenely high. Okay. So um, so the the national overall C-section rate is somewhere about 33, somewhere between 30 and 33%. So about one-third of births happen by C-section. But then you have to break it down and look at – let's separate the different variables. You know, was it a high-risk pregnancy – 
um, complications, things like that? Was it a breech baby where to start off there was going to be no labor? You know, this was this was the scheduled C-section. And so you have to break it down to that too. Among people who are healthy, you know, one baby, head down, and it's, we look, the most important is looking at first-time moms because that kind of determines the trajectory going forward because, you know, having a C-section may make, your first having a C-section may make it a little bit more challenging to have a vaginal birth um, in, in your future. And plenty of people have VBACs, which uh, again, also is another major outcome that is determined by hospital more so than by provider. Um, and so we want to, we, it's easier to just narrow it down to that healthy, you know, first time mom, head down baby, she's laboring, and then she ends up with a C-section and why, what happened? The World Health Organization, their, um, the goal that it should be is somewhere between 10 and 15%. Okay. So yeah, um, 70 is obscenely high. Uh, yeah. <laughs> don't make up numbers, Rifki. Um, okay. So, so you can, you know, you can research the doctor, you can research the hospital, you can have, have an awareness of what's, what's going on, I guess you could say, you know, what, what can be your reasonable um, outcomes. You, you've mentioned birth plan a couple of times. Um, to me, the notion of having a birth plan I, I researched my doctor. I picked my doctor. I got along great with him. And I kind of felt like this is your job now. Like I've done the whole pregnancy. I've done all of that. And you, you know, you take care of the birthing. Um, is that a, is that like a naive um, outlook to have? No, it's not naive. Wouldn't it be nice if people can just make decisions for us? So many, you know, it, it's it's nice that so many friends like these hard decisions. It would be so nice if someone just told us what to do and like we trusted them and we'll just do it. And and in obstetrics, you cannot guarantee outcomes ever. Every intervention has risks and benefits, and those all have to be weighed against each other. And what your doctor did is what we call shared decision making where they involved you in determining your plan of care. And actually that is um, a quality that you want in your provider. Um, so for everyone listening that's trying to figure out, like, is my provider good or not? Do they listen to you? Do they take into account your personal preferences, goals, values? And so it sounds like your doctor did that. And you, at the end of the day, you can just say to your doctor, hey, listen, if this is your wife, what would you pick? And they would yeah, tell I did you that. <laughs> yeah. And, and and anyone can do that. However, no matter what the outcome is, no matter how it ends up, you know that you everything was explained to you and that you went into this informed and that your autonomy was upheld and that ultimately you were able to make the decision for yourself. Now, your decision was, was to ask your provider, what would you do if it were your wife and it sounded good to you? And that was your decision. That may not be the decision for everyone. A lot of people do do that, but it establishes trust between you and your provider. And it establishes the fact that your provider has your best interest in mind and that there's no one way to go about things. And I have to say, I'm actually a nurse expert witness for attorneys in medical malpractice cases and um, birth injury. And I have to say the rate of lawsuits are significantly lower among patients where things were explained to them and they were, they were involved in planning, um, how they're, you know, 
planning their care. Right. And it's, so, yeah, it's see, not naive. Me, right. No, I see to me what is also the thing that I can't help but think of, and this is I'm going to get on a soapbox for just a minute. If you're if I'm, I'm thinking about like a specifically an orthodox or a, or a from demographic where generally it is, I think, unusual for um, for a from woman very often, especially, you know, you're going to have someone who gets married at 19, 20, 21. Their first relationship with an OBGYN is going to be a phone call, maybe an examination where they're going to get on birth control just to kind of plan out the wedding around Nita stuff or or just um, or just for their own personal use to, to be using the birth control for however long they're going to be using typically within a year or two they're going to they're going to be pregnant and then they they had no time to establish that relationship with a provider their first relationship with the with any provider is going to be in pregnancy um don't do that <laughs> if you listen listen if you're listening to this and you are um if you're listening to this and you are single and you are of an age where it is inappropriate to have and to to have a gynecological you know checkup go do it you know, if you're in your 19, you're 19, you're in your 20s or whatever, you are a big girl, go take yourself to a doctor, get yourself checked up, get your pap smear started. By the way, all that's very important. And aside from that, you will be setting yourself up to know in a to know what your relationship with this person is. And if this is someone who you would want to be taking care of you through pregnancy, because let me tell you something, when you're pregnant, you will be too tired to do that, to figure out that information. And you, it's, it's easy to get stuck in that rut of, okay, this is just who I use. And then you can end up with those adverse outcomes. Um, if you're listening to this and you have daughters, introduce them to a good OB. There, I did it. I'm off my soapbox. Um, but I just think that that, that plays into this because we don't, you know, if, if you're getting married young and then you're, um, I'm not off my soapbox yet. Hold on one more point. If you're getting married young and then you're going straight into this, you know, this pregnancy and birthing experience, it's a recipe for disaster in, in a lot of ways. So yeah, back to birth plans. What, what is a, what does a, a helpful birth plan look like? Like what should those conversations with my provider look like to, um, you know, to establish, to establish, to, to clearly establish what it is that you would like for your ideal birth experience to be? I love talking about birth plans because they are so controversial. <laughs> and to me, what a birth plan means is that, and I, I hate the jokes that people say, you can't plan your birth, you know. Um, you have to go into birth definitely with a huge heaping dose of flexibility as you have to go into parenthood that way. However, you can do your education and you can just even determine what you want because you don't may not even know what, not you may not, you don't know most of the time what your options even are when you first get pregnant. Um, and so it's learning about your options and then figuring out what you would like and learning about your options and about the benefits behind choosing something. You know, understanding what the benefits are uh, behind different options. And so to me, when someone says that they created a birth plan, it's just saying that they want to maintain some form of autonomy over their care and make sure that their outcomes turn out as best as possible and that their specific particular individual needs, because everyone is so individual, their needs are met. And you have to start discussing your birth options with your provider early, early, early on, really early on, because you may learn that something that you want is not available through the provider that you're using for one reason or another. And it may be important enough to you that you may want to switch providers, switch birth settings, or it 
it may be something that is just, you know, you need to do like a mind reset and figure out an alternative and how are you going to make this work alternatively. And so that you don't get to the hospital and are like suddenly severely disappointed because all along you thought you were going to have it one way and it didn't turn out that way. So that's why it's so important to have these conversations with your obstetric provider, I would say, you know, as early as 20, 22 weeks, start the conversation, start asking the questions of how you envision your birth. And it, it will help you figure out, is this provider a good fit for me? Um, so that to me is a birth plan. I It's funny because sometimes we have patients that come in with this beautifully laminated birth plan, asking for all the things that we do as standard policy in our hospital anyway, you know. So it, I, you know, I smile to myself. I'm happy because it seems like they did their research. And it's, it's really, you know, it's, I'm, I'm happy that seems like they did the research, but um, it's just funny to me because if they would have spoken to their provider about this ahead of time, they would have known they have nothing to worry about. This is all something we're going to do standard anyway. Um, and also the other way around is that you'll have patients come in asking for ridiculous things like checking off things that they got on a birth plan off of Google and they have no idea why they are checking something off on that birth plan. They have absolutely no idea why they're picking something. And when I explain things to them, they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. No, you're right. I don't want that or the other way around. Oh, I understand now why I need it. So um, I will choose to have it. We'll have patients that are, I hate this word, but like non-compliant, meaning to say, you know, they're, or combative, you know, they're, they, they don't want to do something. They're refusing um, to, they're going against medical advice, whatever it may be. I think a lot of times there's just this power struggle and I love taking like those patients really there. They call them an Alex patient. My, my second name is Alex, but I love taking those patients because I'm somehow able to find a middle ground to establish some form of trust with them, to explain things to them, still leave things up to them. But a lot of times when they understand the reasons behind things, they will change their mind and they'll choose differently and they'll choose what are the recommendations oftentimes. And, but it's coming from them. They're the ones that chose it. And so we're not forcing them into anything. We're not being disgusting to them. We're not mistreating them. Right. Where you're giving, you're giving the power back to the patient to, to make those decisions. Um, <laughs> I just, a funny thought just occurred to me, which is that uh, for anyone listening to this, who uh, uh, had uh, Alex finger to deliver um, their baby, just know you were a very difficult patient. <laughs> <laughs> no, they really are far and few between. I will I'm not sure. Lie. They're far and few between. I'm sure. Anyways, side sidebar. Um, in a, in addition to Your Let It Academy and the Happy Birthway podcast, or, or I guess as a part of um, that whole ecosystem, you have developed a course, and it's called After the Birth, and it's about the postpartum period and and all of that. Um, why why focus on that? You know, why focus on the postpartum experience as opposed to the prepartum? I don't know pregnancy experience, like the 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 pregnancy and birthing experience. Peripartum, intrapartum, yeah. Peripartum, that's so the word. <laughs> it, isn't that ironic? I I have other courses in the works, and we're going to get to the pregnancy. We're going to get to the labor, C-section, pain options, etc. But I find that after giving birth, you know, there can be such a huge spectrum of things that happen in one's labor or birth. You know, having anywhere between having a C-section or people develop complications, ha some happen induction, some don't, some choose to have some kind of uh, pharmacological pain relief, some don't. 
But after the birth, most people experience a very similar course. And I find that I also work postpartum, not as much as labor and delivery, but like 80% of my job on postpartum is educating parents. And I've had so many times when I, I spent some time in a room educating the parents about, you know, mom's care, baby's care, how things work, how they can make things better. And I'll have second, third, fourth time parents with tears streaming down their face saying, thank you so much for spending this time and for telling me this. I don't know why no one ever told me this before. Or I'll come into a room where the patient's given birth two days ago and said that she wanted to exclusively breastfeed um, and the nurses, you know, kind of rolled their eyes. And when I got report from the previous nurse, she's like, yeah, uh, she thought she wanted to breastfeed exclusively. She's not, you know, kind of implying that she's too lazy. But in truth, they didn't receive the proper support. They weren't taught how to position. Their baby's latch wasn't uh, perfected. And so they developed some kind of something that made it unpleasant, and so they didn't do it. And then when I sit there and actually get their baby to latch, make the experience positive, teach them the things, suddenly they're breastfeeding. Huh, big surprise. Um, and so I wanted to put this out there because I, I just – through my years, I've amassed a lot of knowledge and I see it and I continue to learn so much. And I wanted to put that out there in, in, you know, into a course. And not only that, but I've seen where um, postpartum is patients report having a more negative experience a lot of the time postpartum over labor and delivery. Um, I think maybe part of that is because labor and delivery, the nurse patient ratio tends to be lower um, because it is a more acute situation, more acute, you know, patient circumstance. Um, and postpartum, your nurse may have another two or three patients, you know, mom, baby patients, or maybe even more than that. So they're, they're not able to spend as much time with you. And so for all those reasons, and of course, like, you know, the climax of, of having a baby is that birth and nobody, not nobody, but fewer people think about what's going to happen after. And that's, that lasts for longer, and that's going to affect you much more. So that was really my first my first baby, um, I really wanted to make women's, and, and this is not, it's, it's not limited to any affiliation or anything like that. It's just the universal postpartum experience and telling you all the things that your nurses will not tell you in the hospital many times. Right. About what you is, and baby. Right. What is something like, if you had to, if you had to give me like the top one or two things that every postpartum parent should know, what would those be? Okay, first of all, pain control after you give birth is extremely important. Um, many parents don't know that after birth you have cramps. Um, and you, many parents don't know that. Um, it's like contractions, whether you have a C-section or a vaginal birth, either one. Um, and, and, okay, pain control, not just that, but those who have had a C-section, it's major surgery, okay? Um, and if you can, if your pain is not well controlled, you're not going to be able to get up and you're not going to be able to breastfeed as well. And getting up and walking around is extremely important for recovery, for your circulation, for getting out to go to the bathroom, which also, by the way, if your bladder is full, it will cause you more pain unnecessarily. And... Um, so pain control is a huge, huge thing. And of course it affects the quality of how you can bond with your baby. If you're feeling better, you're going to be more up to enjoying your baby and not spending as much attention on your pain. Now, if your pain is not well controlled, 
um, if you don't get on it quickly, then you, it may lead you to having to take more drastic measures to control your pain. You know, taking stronger medications that may make you sleepy, that may make you constipated, etc. And so um, pain control is a huge, huge, huge thing that can affect many different parts of your recovery. Um, should we talk about the first poop after giving birth? <laughs> Please, let's let's go straight into poop. Yeah, you know what? I think that more people are. I think that people are more scared um, than they should be. You know, just take those stool softeners, like drink a ton of water, and um, most people do just fine with having their first poop and just be gentle and don't, you know. And it's normal not to poop for the first few days after birth, by the way. And walking around walking around really will help get your digestive system going because your body kind of shuts down. Like when it's in labor, it's not really, or when you have major surgery, it's not really interested in digesting your food. Like that's not a priority right now. Okay. Like we have to get uh, the birthing, we have to get the baby out. We have to recover from major surgery. Um, And so things kind of slow down, but walking, drinking, all of that's really going to help you get that first poop out. Don't be scared. It will happen. Um, and it, it's really not as bad. It's, it's much smaller than the baby. <laughs> I love that. That's a very good outlook to have. It is much smaller than the baby. This First is comes bi- baby, then comes placenta, and then comes the poop. There you go. And they are progressively smaller, everybody. Um, this has been a really fascinating conversation. And, and I really hope that, that this that gives people a little bit of an insight, not only into how much there is to learn about this process, um, but into the resources that are open and, and available to them. So, uh, Hani, if somebody wants to learn more about you and what you do, where can they go? Okay, so my website is yolodidacademy.com, and there you'll, you'll find the course. You'll find some more information. I'm going to be putting up a guide and starting to upload more guides, um, either for purchase or just, you know, subscribing to my email. Um, I also have something called Yola Dead Community, which is a community, a membership uh, community, and uh, there are many benefits. You can read about it there. I have my Instagram account, Yola Dead Academy, on, it's just, you know, spelled Y-O-L-E-D-E-T, Academy. And my podcast is the Happy Birthway Podcast. Um, so you can reach me in all those areas. You can email me, Khani, at yuladidacademy.com. I, I just love to connect with with just moms. It's so amazing. And I hope I hope that you, I, I hope that I was able to convey the importance of childbirth education and how it's not just like my doctor will tell me what to do and how it really, really, really affects the outcomes of your birth. I definitely think that that point has has gotten across. Uh, one last thing, Khani, what does it mean to you to make an impact? So I, I'm grateful that I was able to start all of this because I'm able to reach so many more people with this. I, I love my one-to-one nursing, my interaction with my patients, but I I love, it is so gratifying to get messages, so many messages from women who have given birth thanking me and saying that my voice was in their head when they were giving birth and that they felt like I was like part of their birth. And it's such a privilege and I'm I'm grateful that I can make that impact and hopefully, you know, uh, make make their experience more positive, more positive and more memorable. And having a child is extremely transformational. Birth is transformational. You know, you can you access so many things within yourself. And I'm not talking about just with motherhood, but so many other things within yourself after you give birth. It's just opens up a whole new discovery of so many aspects and parts of your life. And um, 
you'll remember it forever. So I'm grateful that I'm able to do that. Love that. Thank you so much for coming on today, Hani. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's such an honor. Thanks, Rakeem. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Hani, her links are in the show notes. On last week's episode, I went solo to answer almost all of your questions about my birth. Listen to it wherever you're, you're hearing this one. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of impact fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 16 people listed by Ora Agunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getora.org slash recalcitrant-parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses, original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Itzkowitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.